Thank you so much to Podcorn for sponsoring this week's episode. I've been using Podcorn to help find sponsors for my podcast, and their website makes it so easy. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly. You don't have to worry about any middleman, and the best part is, is you never give up the rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you at every step and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work that you do for brands. Start monetizing your podcast today by signing up for Podcorn using the link in the episode's description. This podcast is brought to you by Military True Crime Addict, a podcast focusing on true life events of military personnel, veterans, and those associated with the military. Give a voice to the victims and hear their side of the story. Raise awareness of the heinous crimes and support those most impacted. Military True Crime Addict is available wherever you get your podcasts. And you don't need to know anything about the military to listen. Now, back to the show. It's well known that as little as 5% of our oceans have been explored. In fact, modern-day open-circuit systems that we see divers still using today wasn't invented safely until 1942 by Jacques Cousteau and Emile Gagnon. We, as humans, have always been curious about what lies beneath the water's surface, just out of reach. In fact, the use of diving bells was recorded by Greek philosopher Aristotle in the 4th century BC. Quote, they enable the divers to respire equally well by letting down a cauldron, for this does not fill with water, but retains air, for it is forced straight down into the water, end quote. But even with our advances in underwater exploration, we've only begun to uncover what lies deep below waiting for us. Hi everyone, I'm your host Alex and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. This week we're doing something a little different. Brought to you by popular demand, I'll be discussing a few different aquatic cryptids what they are, where their origins came from, and some possible sightings that have occurred. Up first, we have one of the most popular oceanic cryptids that everyone has probably heard of, mermaids. In folklore, a mermaid is an aquatic creature with the head and upper body of a female human and the tail of a fish. They've occurred in many cultures worldwide, including Europe, Asia, and Africa. Dating as far back as the Paleolithic era, 30,000 years ago in the Old Stone Age, the first mermaids would appear in cave paintings depicting creatures with the body of a human but a tail of a great fish. But the written origins of mermaids started in the Greek mythology, and at the time it wasn't a half-woman, half-fish combination, it was actually a half-woman, half-bird. 
Historians believe that the shift towards the half-fish combination began possibly as early as the Hellenistic period, right around the death of Alexander the Great and the emergence of the Roman Empire. And the half-woman, half-fish combo is clearly depicted in later Christian bestiaries. Mermaids are also often referred to by the Greek name Siren, which is related in meaning to a rope, inferring that mermaids were, quote, the ones that tie or grab, end quote. Most fables tell stories of mermaids grabbing sailors by tempting them or enchanting them with their sweetness of their songs. Mermaids are sometimes blamed for perilous events such as floods, storms, shipwrecks, and drownings. On January 9, 1493, explorer Christopher Columbus was sailing near the Dominican Republic when he saw three mermaids. His journal states that he, quote, saw three mermaids standing high out of the water. They had faces something similar to those of human beings, but were not as handsome as it was customary to represent them, end quote. Yep, you heard that right. Christopher Columbus called these mermaids ugly. But in modern day, it's often speculated that what Christopher Columbus was actually seeing were manatees, not mermaids. According to the History Channel, quote, mermaid sightings by sailors, when they weren't made up, were most likely manatees, dugongs, or stellar sea cows, which became extinct in the 1760s due to overhunting, end quote. But what about more recent mermaid sightings? In the 1940s, World War II Japanese soldiers were stationed at the Kai Islands in Indonesia where they had some odd encounters with mermaids. Local villagers were familiar with the creatures and referred to them as orang ikan, which translates to manfish. The creature, as described by Japanese sergeant Taro Horiba, were, quote, roughly 4 feet 9 inches tall, or 150 centimeters, pinkish skin, human-looking face and limbs, spikes along its head, and a mouth like a carp, end quote. Sergeant Horiba requested that the villagers hold on to this creature so that he could get the scientific community involved, but unfortunately, that's where our story ends. In 1967, in British Columbia, Canada, close to the west entrance of the Active Pass, a ferry filled with tourists spotted a blonde-haired mermaid sitting topless on a beach eating a salmon fish and enjoying the waves splashing up on her. The Daily Colonist reported that she had been at Helen Point on the northwest end corner of Main Island and had been eating a large salmon. On June 15, 1967, the Daily Colonist cranked it up a notch, reporting that a $25,000 reward would be offered for the, quote, dimple mermaid of active pass, end quote. The offer was made by Charles White of the Undersea Gardens, who added that a, quote, panel of competent marine biologists, end quote, would have to confirm that the mermaid was the real thing. There was one more sighting of a mermaid at Cordova Bay more than one week later, but the woman who saw the creature was not convinced that it was a mermaid. That was the final report made by the Daily Colonist, and some are convinced it was just a hoax, but others are not so sure. April 12, 1998, in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii, 
A diver named Jeff Leicher claims that he got the first ever documented proof that mermaids do exist. Jeff operates the Jack Diving Locker of Kauai and was 20 minutes off the coast of Kauai when he saw what looked like a nude woman swimming with a pod of dolphins. He said, quote, she had long flowing hair and was one of the most beautiful faces I've ever seen, end quote. The woman was able to keep up the pace with the dolphins, which Jeff thought was odd. All of a sudden, she jumps up into the air, and that's when he noticed she had the lower half of a fish. Six other divers were exploring the ocean bottom at the same time, and ten people on the boat witnessed the incident, but the mermaid disappeared just after two jumps out of the water. You might think this is the end of the story, but an hour later, as Jeff was photographing some underwater life, that same mermaid brushed up against him while swimming and turned back around just in time for him to snap a few pictures. Quote, I feel very lucky that I'm the one to finally prove to the world what people have known for half a century. The Kauai Point mermaid is real. End quote. However, most people just speculate that this was just a publicity stunt for the diver's work. In 2012, an American made-for-TV thriller produced for Animal Planet and Discovery Channel in the form of a documentary titled Mermaids the Body Found claimed to have audio evidence for the existence of mermaids or an unknown species in the ocean. The sound, known as bloop, is an ultra-low frequency, high-amplitude underwater sound detected by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or the NOAA, in 1997. According to the NOAA description, the sound rose in frequency over one minute and was of sufficient amplitude to be heard on multiple sensors at a range of 3,000 miles or 5,000 kilometers. The NOAA's description of the sound is consistent with noises generated via non-tectonic chirocism originating from glacial movements such as ice calving or through seabed gouging by ice. However, NOAA's Christopher Fox states that while the audio profile of the bloop does resemble that of a living creature, the source was a mystery because it would be, quote, far more powerful than the calls made by any animal on Earth, end quote. While the source of the bloop continues to lay undetermined, one thing is for sure. It can't be from mermaids, as the 2012 mockumentary suggested. However, our oceans are vast and lay mostly unexplored. So what do you think? Are mermaids real? Next up, we have another popular krypton, the Kraken. The Kraken is a legendary sea monster of gigantic size and cephalopod-like appearance. In Nordic folklore, it's said that it haunts the seas from Norway, through Iceland, and all the way to Greenland. The Kraken is known for harassing ships, and entries about the Kraken can be found in old pseudoscientific reports and official naval reports. In fact, in a book titled The First Attempt at a Natural History of Norway, written by Eric Pontipiden in the mid-1700s, it's said that the Kraken could devour a ship's entire crew at once. 
The author made several claims regarding the Kraken, including the notion that the creature was sometimes mistaken for an island, and that the real danger to sailors was not the creature itself, but rather the whirlpool that it left in its wake. However, he also described the destructive potential of the giant beast, saying, quote, It is said that if the creature's arms were to lay hold of the largest man of war, they would pull it down to the bottom, end quote. Going back even further in history, in 1250, the anonymous author of the old Norwegian natural history work, Kanungs Skudja, I hope I pronounced that right, it's translated from Old Norse roughly to King's Mirror. It describes in detail the physical characteristics and feeding behavior of the beasts. The narrator proposed that there would be only two in existence, stemming from the observation that the beasts have always been sighted in the same parts of the Greenland Sea, and that it seemed incapable of reproduction as there was no increase in their numbers. In 2011, archaeologists uncovered what could be potential evidence that a kraken-like creature once existed. The kraken, which would have been nearly 100 feet or 30 meters long, or twice the size of a colossal squid, likely drowned or broke the necks of prehistoric creatures known as ichthyosaurs before dragging the corpses to its lair during the Triassic period, according to study researcher Mark McMenamin at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. However, not all paleontologists agree on this, as Glenn Storrs, the curator of the vertebrae paleontology at Cincinnati Museum Center, says, quote, no direct evidence of large cephalopods, in fact, very little data at all, is problematic for proposing such a radical explanation. Circumstantial evidence is not enough, end quote. So making the assumption that these fossils are unrelated to a kraken-like creature, that still leaves us with what is the kraken? Is it real, or did these old authors not spend a lot of time near the sea and were confusing this large creature with something else? Modern-day skeptics argue that what Eric Pontipidin and other ciders had actually seen was not a kraken, but in fact a colossal squid. The maximum length known of a colossal squid has been estimated to be about 30 to 33 feet, or 9 to 10 meters, and it's also confirmed to reach a mass of at least 1,091 pounds, or 495 kilograms. Footage of the colossal squid has been captured recently, as well as a photo of one that washed up on shore in South Africa in 2020. I'll be posting all of these photos to the podcast's Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, so be sure to check it out. Up next, we have the Loch Ness Monster, or sometimes referred to as Nessie. The Loch Ness Monster is a creature in Scottish folklore that is said to inhabit Loch Ness, a large freshwater lake near Inverness, Scotland. It is often described as large, long-necked, and with one or more humps protruding from the water. Although accounts of the aquatic beast living in the lake date back 1,500 years, all efforts to find any credible evidence of the animal have failed. Popular interest and belief in the creature has varied since it was brought to worldwide attention in 1933. Evidence of its existence is anecdotal with a number of disputed photographs and sonar readings. 
Scholars of the Loch Ness Monster find a dozen references to Nessie in Scottish history dating back to around 500 AD when local pigs carved a strange aquatic creature into standing stones near Loch Ness. The earliest written reference to a monster in Loch Ness is a 7th century biography of St. Columba, the Irish missionary who introduced Christianity to Scotland. In 565 AD, according to the biographer, St. Columba was on his way to visit the King of the Northern Picts near Inverness when he stopped at Loch Ness to confront a beast that had been killing people in the lake. Seeing a large beast about to attack another man, St. Columba intervened invoking the name of God and commanding the creature to go back with all speed. The monster retreated and never harmed another man. The first modern appearance occurred in the 1870s, but the account wasn't published until the 1930s. The best-known article that first attracted a great deal of attention to the creature in Loch Ness was published on May 2, 1933, in the Inverness Courier about a large beast or whale-like fish. The Courier in 2017 published excerpts from the Campbell article which had been titled Strange Spectacle in Loch Ness. Quote, the creature disported itself, rolling and plunging for fully a minute, its body resembling that of a whale, and the water cascading and churning like a simmering cauldron. Soon, however, it disappeared into a boiling mass of foam. Both onlookers confessed that there was something uncanny about the whole thing, for they realized that here was no ordinary denizen of the depths, because, apart from its enormous size, the beast, in taking the final plunge, sent out waves that were big enough to have been caused by a passing steamer." End quote. This 1933 article generated a lot of interest in the Loch Ness creature. Scores of tourists descended on Loch Ness and sat in boats or deck chairs waiting for an appearance by the beast. A famous 1934 photograph seemed to show a dinosaur-like creature with a long neck emerging from the murky waters, leading some to speculate that Nessie was a solitary survivor of a long-extinct Pliosaurus. But in 1994, it was determined that this photo, taken in 1934, was a hoax. In 1975, Boston's Academy of Applied Science combined sonar and underwater photography in an expedition to Loch Ness. A photo resulted that, after some enhancement, appeared to show a giant flipper of a pliosaur-like creature, and further sonar expeditions in the 1980s and 1990s resulted in more tantalizing, if inclusive, readings. Researchers from New Zealand have tried to catalog all living species in the loch by extracting DNA from water samples. Following analysis, the scientists have ruled out the presence of a large animal said to be behind the reports of a monster. But these research produced a new theory about what observers were actually seeing in Loch Ness. Geneticist Neil Gremmel said, quote, there's no shark DNA in Loch Ness based on our sampling. There is also no catfish DNA in Loch Ness based on our sampling. We can't find any evidence of any sturgeon either. There is a very significant amount of eel DNA. 
Eels are very plentiful in Loch Ness, with eel DNA being found in pretty much every location sampled. There are a lot of them. So, are they giant eels? Well, our data doesn't reveal their size, but the sheer quantity of the material says that we can't discount the possibility that there might be giant eels in Loch Ness. Therefore, we can't discount the possibility that what people see and believe is the Loch Ness Monster might actually be a giant eel." End quote. So what do you think? Is it perhaps a prehistoric marine reptile? Or maybe a giant eel? Or is the Loch Ness Monster real? Last but not least, we have Pinky, aka the St. John's River Monster. On May 10th, 1975, at 10 a.m., near Jacksonville, Florida, a boat carrying five people down the St. John's River came across an unknown creature. The passengers of the boat stated that what they had seen was much like a dragon with a long neck, and it raised its head out of the water quickly and was gone just as fast. The earliest sightings of the creature occurred in the 1950s. Most of the sightings occurred on a stretch of river between Astor Park and Lake Monroe. Fishermen, boaters, and hikers all reported seeing the same creature, yet, oddly, descriptions of the beast varied widely, ranging from something like a whale or manatee to a creature more like some sort of prehistoric dinosaur, like a brontosaurus or reptilian beast, to a shapeless blob pointing to the possibility that there was more than one monster in the river. But one thing they all had in common was that the thing seen was supposed to be immense and was definitely no fish. In the 1960s, Mary Lou Richardson, her father, and a friend reported seeing something large swimming through the water while out bow hunting. All three witnesses stated that the creature was an extremely odd-looking animal with a large, flat head sitting upon a somewhat long neck. The creature looked almost like that of a dinosaur, and during that same day, four other separate groups of people sighted the exact same-looking creature in the same stretch of river originally seen by Mary Lou. The clearest description of the river monster comes from one of the five boaters in 1975. Dorothy Abrams stated that the monster looked something like a dinosaur, but that its skin was pulled back so tight that you could see almost all of its bones. The head, which sat on top a three-foot-long neck, was almost the size of a full-grown man's, and sitting on top of it were two snail-like horns that each had a little bone like a knob at the end. On each side of the head were flaps of skin that hung down over what appeared to be gills, and the mouth was so large and was turned downward, and the eyes were slanted and very dark. The skin was almost pink in color, much like that of boiled shrimp. It's the defining feature that gave the St. John's River Monster its new nickname, Pinky. Eventually, as the years went on, fewer sightings of Pinky were made, and it seemed as if years passed between sightings and eventually they seemed to stop altogether. Because of this, fishermen and residents along the river believed that Pinky may have died. So what creature could have been this monster known as Pinky? Some cryptozoologists today believe that the St. John's River monster could have been a new species of giant salamander. The Japanese giant salamander can grow to a length of 5 feet long, and the Chinese giant salamander can grow to a length of 6 feet long. 
Both species can have a pink skin color due to their diet, and others believe that it could be an albino manatee, alligator, or pink dolphin. But since sightings have seemed to stop, we'll never know exactly what Pinky is, or was. An albino manatee? A pink dolphin? Or a terrifying creature traveling up the St. John's River from the Atlantic Ocean? As technology and our understanding of science continues to advance, we're able to create more realistic theories or explanations on some common cryptids throughout history. However, most of our oceans still lay completely unexplored, so who knows what we'll find down there in the deep, dark depths waiting for us. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions about this week's episode, you can head over to my Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, or my Discord server. All the links for it can be found in the episode's description. If you want to support the podcast, there's always Patreon or sharing the podcast with a friend. The Patreon is just $3 a month or the price of one coffee, and you get access to a lot of perks such as voting on what to hear next, exclusive updates, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and 10% off podcast merchandise. Thank you so much to my newest patron, William W. Your support means the world to me, and I'm so glad to have each and every one of you on this journey with me. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting the podcast, and I'll see you all next week. Thank you.